Thank you for listening to the audio podcast of the King's Crossing Church of Christ. To learn more or subscribe, please visit our website at kingscrossingcoc.com. It's really good to see all of you here with us this morning. It's a good day to be here. Uh, we've been doing a study on Sunday mornings of the life of Abraham And I have to tell you, it's kind of like every time I get to one of these difficult stories in Abraham's life, I tell myself, man, that was a really hard one, but at least I got that one past me now. The one we've got for today is not an easy one either. There's a lot of those in the life of Abraham. But in our text for today, we're going to continue where we left off in last week's story. As Pat read for us earlier in our worship service today, Abraham at his tent had these three visitors showed up. And as the visitors came, they were there for a couple of different purposes. Last week, we talked about the first purpose, which was to announce a beginning, the good news, the reminder. It's going to be within a year that your son, Isaac, is going to be born. Even though you're going to be 100 years old, Sarah's going to be 90 years old, they were here to bring good news. So they were here to announce a beginning, but the second part of why they came is what we're going to talk about today, which is they were coming not only to announce but to accomplish an ending. The cities of the plain had grown so wicked and so bad that God felt he had no choice but at least to come down and investigate, and if it was consistent with what he had been hearing, he was going to act uh, mightily in this case. So encouraging to me is that what God said, as he describes what he would do, he says the outcry is so great, their sins are so terrible I'm going to go down and see for myself, and if what I'm hearing isn't true, I'll definitely know it. So I appreciate that God is willing to at least go down and have a look. Wouldn't you like to think that if someone in their prayers were complaining about you, God wouldn't just kind of push the smite button, but would at least say, I'm going to at least hear you out and see why it is you're doing what you're doing. He even extends that to Sodom and Gomorrah, which I'm I'm happy about, but early in the chapter, early in this story... The big question is, do we tell Abraham? Do we tell Abraham what we're going to do? Now, the decision is yes. Otherwise, a lot of this story wouldn't be present for us. The decision is yes, but the reasoning I find fascinating. Genesis 18 and verse 18 says, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him, for I have chosen him so that he will direct his children in his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. So that's the rational, I mean, that's the, the reasoning that he's giving for why he's choosing to include Abraham, which is a, a great model of, of good parenting and compassionate leadership, isn't it? If, if this is a person I'm going to be bringing along, if I'm bringing along his family for all that I'm going to be doing in human history, I should keep them as an insider. I should tell them what I'm doing. I should let them have a peek into what it is that's going on so they get the full picture. And so I like the way that they set that model of inclusion, that we would talk to our children and talk to our grandchildren about what we do and why we do it, and that we would verbalize our faith in God and verbalize our hope in heaven and all the reasons we do the things that we do. So at this point in the story, like a lot of good novels, the party divides in two, and in your heads you have to kind of picture two things going on at the same time. On the one hand, 
uh, there's three visitors who show up. One is the Lord himself, or the angel of the Lord, as he's called. He's going to stay back, and he's going to talk with Abraham. The other two start making their way towards the cities of the plain. And so as you hear one conversation going on, what you have to picture is they're standing there, and you see the two men getting smaller and smaller as they're moving down towards the cities of the plain. It's, it's a nice dramatic effect. And in fact, probably where this conversation is happening may have just been where Abraham and Lot talked a long time ago when they talked about who's going to take which land. And Lot says, I want to go down there to that lush-looking valley where I'm going to stay. So what I'd like to do, I actually want to start with what happens with the angels who visit the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and then I want to come back to the conversation that Abraham has with God. But understand, the story tells it like both of these things are kind of moving at the same time. And you know, you could do some little cutscenes back and forth as you play this story in your head. So the Reader's Digest version of what happens next is that the angels arrived in town that evening, so it was a bit of a walk, but they get there in town, and Lot sees them at the gate of the city. This is Abraham's nephew, and it starts off fine. Lot is hospitable, just like his uncle, just the way that Abraham had welcomed them and insisted on feeding them. He immediately says, I mean, insists, no, you can't stay here in the town square. You can't stay out here in public. You have got to come to my house. You're going to stay with me. I'm going to feed you. He welcomes them, he prepares a good meal, they eat together, and then it takes a major turn for the worse. In Genesis 19 and verse 4, it says, before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who've never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. I don't know which part of this is more shocking so far. But don't do anything to these men, for they've come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge, will treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break the door down. So I want to pause here. Man, there's a lot to unpack in this text. But I want to pause here and say, first of all, there's, there's a point to be noted about hospitality in the ancient world. Hospitality was very important. We saw it in Abraham. We see it now in Lot. But if you were to extend an offer to someone and say, you're going to come and stay at my house, stay with me and my family, you would treat them absolutely as if they were family. You would protect them. You would sacrifice yourself before you would see any harm come to them. That is certainly part of what's going on here. But I have to say, the awfulness of what Lot suggests as a counteroffer, is likewise unimaginable. Like this is a, These are some hard things in the text to me to kind of let go of and look at anything else. It is possible, it is possible that one way to read this is that when Lot suggests this, he calls them his friends. The, I mean, he lives there in the city with, the, with them. They know him. They know his children, surely. And so when he makes this counteroffer, 
maybe he is trying to suggest something so awful that it will kind of wake them up and shock them out of this thing that they're wanting to do. Maybe that's what's going on. I'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt, but there's just no way around. This guy says, don't go for those guys. Take my two virgin daughters instead. Some serious dysfunction. And in fact, we won't even spend time on this story, but once they finally get out of the city, the next thing that happens is that Lot's daughters get him inebriated and sleep with him. So this is a family that's got significant levels of dysfunction. Significant levels of dysfunction. But moving back to this story at hand, it's at this point that the angels intervene. The question was, is, Lot, is, is Sodom as bad as God has been hearing Sodom is? And the answer is, undoubtedly so. This place is irredeemable. So they grab Lot, they pull him back inside, they strike all the people with blindness so that they can't find the doors, and then the angels begin to speak very candidly with Lot about what it is that's about to happen and why it is that they've come. I wish I had more time to flesh out some parallels between Noah's family and Lot's family, because I think it is intended by the text that we would see Lot's family as a sort of cheap, counterfeit version of Noah's family. So you think about the two scenarios where there is impending disaster. In fact, it uses the same word to devastate, impending devastation. And a family is warned of what's coming. Noah's family makes every preparation for the coming flood, does everything to build this huge ark, to, to make provisions, everything that they needed to do in order to be saved by the ark. His daughters-in-law are, of course, on there with his three sons. They, as a family, survive. But Lot's family isn't anything like this. When Lot goes and tells his son-in-laws what, what's going to happen to the city, they just flat out laugh at him. They're not going to move. They're not going to do anything. They laugh and they mock him. Lot himself is dragging his feet. The angels keep saying, hurry up, hurry up. We can't do anything until you leave. And they finally kind of grab him and take him out of the city. And he says, look, do I really have to go all the way up there to the mountaintop? There's this little town called Zoar. It's not that far. Can we just go to Zoar? And you can kind of see the angels going, okay, fine. We won't destroy Zoar, but hurry up and get over there. But Lot is dragging his feet in every way, not to mention what happens with his wife. There's something about the way that she looks back longingly for Sodom, where it's like, even though I'm leaving it, I wish I could stay there. There's something about her love for this place that is striking. Now, um, this piece of artwork, uh, our own Jerry Bass painted this. This is his imagining of what it would look like, that moment of, of Lot's wife. So I've got you covered here, Jerry. I really appreciate this. You can see this if you go to the church office. I have this hanging right outside my office door. You should really pause and look at it. And in fact, Lot's wife, Jerry, actually made with salt. So he stuck a bunch of salt to his painting. But thinking about this scenery, this scenario of what happened as they're being delivered, and then also her turning back it says something about this family that even though they wanted to be blessed as connected to Abraham, they wanted to go as near corruption as they possibly could. They wanted to join themselves to a faithless people. And even as God begged them to save themselves, they still longed for it. And as the story goes, Abraham, we find him back on that same hillside where he'd been talking to God the next day, and he sees the smoke rising where these places have been struck down. Um, 
as you understand what Scripture describes with the fire from heaven, um, when in, in the ancient world, when they wanted to talk about lightning bolts, they would call it fire from heaven. Uh, the Jewish historian Josephus retells this story, and the way he understood that text was, he said that God started striking the city with lightning bolts until it all caught a flame, and then it burned to the ground. That's how he told that story. Interestingly, Josephus even claims to have been down there by the Dead Sea, claiming, and this is a couple hundred years after the time of Christ, claiming to have seen that pillar of salt still there. So that's something he claims to have seen with his own eyes. Okay. So, what can we do with this story? Uh, The contents of this situation are shocking and hard to grapple with. Um, Certainly, the intended homosexual gang rape by an entire city is held up as one of the most shocking and awful points of this story. I would point out that this is to be seen as kind of a culmination of everything that's wrong with this place. If you could take all that there was about Sodom and sum it up in one horrendous action, that would be the action. What it is they intended to do to these visiting men. There's an Old Testament scholar uh, named Walter Brueggemann who has made some, what I think are very helpful suggestions about how we can interpret this passage. He warns about three approaches that we should be kind of cautious about, and I want to uh, reference these briefly. He says, as you study the story of Sodom, it's probably important to avoid a stylized and stereotyped description of judgment and destruction. It would be very easy for us to look at that story, and then anytime you see a natural disaster, say, see, Just like Sodom, probably a bunch of wicked people there who deserved what they got and all that stuff that happened to them. Jesus himself will push back on that in Luke chapter 13, where they saw a terrible thing that happened to someone, and they wanted to start speculating on why. And Jesus says, no, it's really going to be more of a circumstance-by-circumstance ordeal. I mean, if we wanted to apply that to our own time, when that hurricane came by so rough a couple of years ago, are we all ready to pronounce that the city of Rockport is so much worse than we are that they deserved what happened? Of course we wouldn't say that. So we have to be very careful, even as we look at Sodom in that situation, of just making this kind of broad stroke. Anytime a disaster happens, the people were wicked, it's God's judgment. We don't see God acting like this often at all, which is part of what makes this so shocking. A second thing we have to avoid is that we have to avoid treating the work of God as if it's just cold arithmetic and calculation. We're going to talk about his conversation with Abraham, but one way you could approach this is to get overly caught up in the mathematics of it, where Abraham starts saying, well, if it was only 40 people or 30 people or 10, and to say, well, you see, if there had been 10 people, God would have spared them, but you know, there was only nine, so you know, God's merciless where you treat God like he's just cold and calculating. That's also not a good way to read this story because we see the way that God was determined to go down and really investigate what was going on. A third thing to be cautious about in this story is that we need to avoid acting as if the only offense of Sodom was homosexuality and then just start moralizing about it. That is certainly a factor in what's going on, and certainly intended as part of the shockingness of this situation. But it was not the only thing that was wrong with Sodom. If you read the rest of Scripture and the way Scripture reflects on this story, there's kind of a broader picture. And so I think we need to take a, a both-and approach when we look at what we would say is wrong with these places. Isaiah chapter 3 and verse 9 is one such place that mentions Sodom. 
Look at how the rest of Scripture describes why it is that God did this to them. He says, the look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them. They have brought disaster upon themselves. Isaiah is here saying it's not just what they did, but the fact that they were so brazen and open about it, that's the problem. It's not just what they do, it's their attitude and the celebratory nature of their actions. That's what he says about Sodom. Jeremiah chapter 23 also speaks about the destruction of the city. Um, He kind of enumerates uh, the issues going on in Jerusalem, and he's comparing Jerusalem to Sodom, and he says... And among the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen something horrible. They commit adultery and live a lie. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that not one of them turns from their wickedness. They are all like Sodom to me. The people of Jerusalem are like Gomorrah. Again, there's this determination to be wicked. They're not picking out a single action, but looking at a culture of wickedness and evil doing. And then finally, Ezekiel chapter 16 references this and says in verse 49, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. So he's saying this is the problem with Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, whoa, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. So that's what the rest of Scripture says is they interpret this story. So if I could kind of summarize what these passages say, what are the real problems going on in Sodom? I do think that act is a culmination of several things. It's symptomatic of the deeper problems that they have. Number one is a problem of total injustice. They have absolutely no regard for showing mercy on anyone. They take predatory actions toward the vulnerable, the people who are weak and defenseless, the visitors from out of town. They would do anything they could to be horrible to them. There is a brazen embrace of everything that is crooked. Anything counter to God, they can't get enough of it in a sense of total self-indulgence. Regardless of how God has designed us, regardless of what God's will is for me and what I do with my body, I'm going to go ahead and do absolutely whatever I feel like whenever I feel like it. So again, I would say the actions of all the men of the city that night are really a culmination of all of these other factors. We're going to do whatever we want, whenever we feel like it, to whomever we feel like, for whatever benefits us with no regard for anyone or anything else. Interestingly, Lot tries to counter them, and he pronounces their actions as wicked, if you notice that. He says, my friends, don't do this evil thing. Don't do this wicked thing. Their response is one that's very eerie to me, because I've heard it before. What they say is, don't you dare judge me. I'm going to do what I want to do. Don't you judge me. You're from out of town. What business have you got trying to tell me how to live my life and do what I feel like doing? It is that, it is that urge manifested in such a horrendous way that pushes God to the point that he's going to do something. God hears the prayers of the weak and the vulnerable. The outcries against this place were understandably severe, and God 
reached the point that he concluded there is nothing about this place worthy of preservation. And if we're honest, the only reason Lot is being saved is because he's Abraham's relative. The text even says that in 19 and verse 29. It's basically just because he's related to Abraham that he's getting any of this mercy at all. Okay, so now we've talked about the fireworks and the real shocking stories. I want to scoop back a bit and focus on something that's a really important part of this whole encounter. Remember, the angels have got one track going on in the story, but there's another track happening where Abraham is still standing there as the two men walk away, and he's having a conversation with God. If we could go back up to the top of that hill before the fire and the brimstone start, you'd see Abraham and God having a conversation. And God says, Sodom and Gomorrah, these cities in the plain, they have reached their limit. If what I'm hearing is true, I have got to do something about this. I can't let these places go on. They are awful beyond belief. And then Abraham did something that's fascinating. It says in Genesis 18 and verse 22, the men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. I wonder how long he stood there before he got the nerve up to say something. He remained standing. He wasn't leaving, but God had told him what was about to happen. Then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in this city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. This is a heavy sentence. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Let those words sit with you for a moment. Boldness in prayer to stand before God, to be that honest, even to challenge the intentions and the actions of God. I think most often for us, when we raise these kinds of questions, it's because we've seen something awful in the world. Sadly, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah hasn't stopped people in this world from doing horrendous, awful things. They're still happening around us. But just the same, the question we tend to ask is, If God is all good and God is all powerful, if he really is good and he could do something about it, why doesn't God just kind of wipe everything clean? And when people are going to do something terrible, why doesn't God intervene and just, you know, shoot lightning bolts or drop a bomb or whatever God wants to do to go ahead and wipe out all the evil and fix that problem in the world? But Abraham is looking at this from a totally different angle than we typically do. And his question is, you know, God, if you're really all good, and all-powerful, how could you be so unflinching in your judgment that you would just wipe out a city, harming the good along with the bad? What Abraham is saying here, and this is, again, really convicting to me, he says, God, we don't need you to be vindictive like we are. We don't need you to be harsh like human beings are. You be like yourself, You're merciful and you're loving. You're the judge of all the earth. Be like you. Don't be like us. 
He's calling on God to be even more like himself. You're the judge of all. Won't you do the right thing? I think we have to pause and acknowledge this is one of those moments where you get a glimpse of why Abraham is to be held in such high regard because in what he's doing right here, the righteousness of Abraham exceeds even the righteousness of Job. You know, Job is considered one of the best men who ever lived, but when Job went through terrible unjust suffering, Job, assuming his own innocence, goes and prays to God on his own behalf, begging for mercy for himself because he deserved mercy. Abraham is praying for people who don't even know or care that they're being prayed for, who everyone acknowledges is guilty. He's asking God to be good to his enemies. He's praying for God to be kind to those who don't deserve it. People recognized, deservedly so, as guilty. I think most of us are familiar with this conversation. It's really incredible. I mean, it's one thing to be so bold as to say, God, do the right thing. Don't just harm the good people with the bad people. But then he starts kind of bargaining with them. You know, Lord, I know that I'm just, I'm just dust. I'm going to return to dust. I'm nobody to approach you. But, you know, okay, you said you'd spare it for 50. What about 45? And he kind of comically almost continues this conversation. Well, what about, uh, what about 30? What about 20? God, would you, would you, just for the sake of 10 people, would you spare it? And every time, encouragingly, the answer is yes. Even for 10 people, I would save the rest. The implications of this conversation are very powerful for us. And I think in a lot of ways anticipate the full good news of the gospel. We get just a glimpse of what God has in mind for us and what's going on here between God and Abraham. Because sadly, Sodom was not redeemable. This was a situation so bad that that action God saw as necessary. God is the one to be the judge. But do you understand, I hope we can see from this story that because of Abraham's righteousness, because he interceded and prayed for these people, it was almost sufficient to save them. They were almost saved by his actions had there just been a few more people willing to be righteous and to do the right thing. The message here is that in the grand scheme of things, it is the power of righteousness that will override evil. The way that God will deal with evil in the world is not going to be to be even worse to his enemies than they've been to him, but instead, it is ultimately God's love that is going to conquer. And every time Abraham petitions God and says, God, would you be even more merciful than I thought you would be? What was his answer every time? Yes. We can always move the heart of God to be more merciful. Righteous people have the capacity to save and overcome the destructiveness of guilt. We're going to overcome evil with good. How important it is that we remain a righteous and faithful presence in all the places that we go. It's true for us as a church within this city that we want to be the presence of righteousness in the people of Corpus Christi and certainly in this part of town where we are, but That can be your role within your family. It can be the role you play within your workplace that 
Do you see the great potential you have that if you choose to be a person who is upright and righteous and God-centered in what you do, you might, just like Abraham, be a blessing to so many because God will use that and work through that. And when given the option, God will choose to bless righteousness every time more than he's anxious to deal out punishment toward wickedness. Not that he won't deal with it. Not that it doesn't become necessary. But it's great to know that God loves to be urged toward greater mercy and that as a people who practice justice, righteousness, and loving compassion, when we embody those things in our life, we can make such a good impact on the world around us so that just like Abraham, the world can be blessed because we're here. It's great to know that we have that kind of standing before God. This morning, maybe there is someone here that we could be praying for. Uh, Maybe you've got a a prayer request on your heart, something that's been grieving you or frustrating you, and you'd like, uh, maybe it's something you'd like to have the whole church pray for. Um, Our elders are going to be positioned around the room in just a moment, so if you'd like to go talk with one of them privately, or you can come to the front and talk to me here. And also, we have people every week who are choosing to respond just by sending us a message. You can do that from our website on the back of your bulletin or also on this screen. Just take out the camera app on your phone. When you point the camera at it, it'll pop up a little link. You touch it, and it'll take you right to a form. Let us know what we need to know, and we're happy to encourage you, pray for you. But however you need to respond to this message, uh, this is a time we've set aside where you can do that. We would invite you to come forward as together we stand and sing.